Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Angela Jung, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Chinese Law at the University of Hong Kong. Angela is also the author of Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism, How the Rest of China Challenges Global Regulation. We discuss what antitrust is and the relationship it has between business and government globally, which we greatly expound upon given the influence big tech companies have both in the U.S. and in China. We also discuss the main consequences of China's ascent on the global antitrust policy landscape and what the West usually gets wrong about how Chinese policy is formed, as well as the delay of Alibaba's IPO and how Huawei is caught in the middle of the U.S.-China antitrust policy tug-of-war. Enjoy. Now, when I talk about how China regulates and as well as how China is regulated, these two parts actually are interdependent because how China regulates has implications on how China is regulated. As you see now, China is trying to tighten its control over the tech companies. And, and that actually may give rise to more suspicions from foreign governments over Chinese tech companies. And that make it even more difficult for these companies to succeed overseas and adapt to foreign regulations. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here. So please introduce yourself. What sort of work do you do, and what is your primary area of expertise? I'm a social professor of law at the University of Hong Kong. I also direct the Center for Chinese Law at my law school here. I primarily focus on studying regulatory issues uh, in China, particularly uh, in antitrust law. Right. Okay. So can you explain what antitrust is to those of who are listeners who may not be familiar with the concept and why is it so important? in the relationship between business and government globally? Well, antitrust is an area of law that mainly deals with the anti-competitive effects arising from uh, monopolies. But I have to clarify here that um, having a monopoly power does not um, necessarily mean that the firm is in violation of antitrust law. Um, the antitrust law only intervenes when the monopoly firms um, has abused its power, say, by exploiting its consumers or uh, its suppliers, or have excluded competitors uh, to the detriment of the consumer welfare. Now, you mentioned that antitrust is a very, um, has been quite important relationship between businesses and governments, um, not just in China, but perhaps also in the rest of the world. It's because, in my opinion, antitrust is an incredibly powerful tool 
for governments to um, rein in big monopolies and particularly the big tax these days. If you look at what's happening in China, right? I mean, the anti-monopoly law um, in China can afford the administrative agency significant sanctioning power and very vast discretion. So under the Chinese antitrust law, a firm can face a fine of up to 10% of its turnover in the previous year. So for a very big company, that could amount to billions of dollars, right? I mean, for instance, just three months ago, Alibaba was subject to a fine of 2.8 billion US dollars. And, and that's only equivalent to 4% of its turnover in 2019. And also in China, as you know, because you, you've done business in China, businesses tend to want to build a very strong and a collegial relationship with the government. So very few firms would challenge the agency directly, not to say to sue them in court, right? And particularly for a very large publicly listed company that could have a lot of implications and could cause strong repercussions to the stock prices. So as a result, um, the government agency almost have the final say on the outcome, right? I mean, that does give them significant discretion in uh, dealing with the, the big companies. And that's a very different dynamic from what's happening in the United States, where you see the court, the judiciary plays a very crucial role in constraining agency power. Yeah. What is China's relationship with antitrust been historically? I think we want to kind of cover that and, and, and look back before we look forward. And if you could actually touch on the specific events of, if they were specific, of what happened in 2008 and 2013, and has it affected antitrust enforcement? Right. I mean, for a really long time, Chinese policymakers were ambivalent about whether China need to have an antitrust law at all, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because after all, China has an unusually large state sector. Like, I mean, if you look around in the world, there are very few countries, right, China, that have yeah. such a large state-owned economy. And even today, state-owned farms do contribute to almost 25% of the GDP. So there is a, a very fierce debate of whether China needs an anti-monopoly yeah. law at all. But China finally decided to, ha to have one and actually accelerated on the drafting the law, especially after China's entry into the WTO, because China saw the threat of foreign competition, especially so many foreign multinational companies coming into China, flooding uh, the investment in China. They were worried that they will crowd out domestic companies, especially at that time, the Chinese companies were relatively small. So, and, and that um, was one of the big and important reasons why China uh, eventually adopted an anti-monopoly law in 2007. And so in 2008, the law became effective. And in a few years, I mean, the first few years, the agencies uh, were very preoccupied with capacity uh, building. They were busy drafting guidelines, 
um, having all these trainings and conferences. So, so it was a relatively quiet first few years. But when what we see is really since 2013, we saw you know there was a quite active enforcement, particularly between 2013 and 2015. And then after 2015, and especially after 2018, it, it became quiet uh, again until very recently with the China's like sudden interest in regulating its domestic tech giants. And all of a sudden, all this uh, antitrust world was reinvigorated. So we know that antitrust and a lot of people would be aware that antitrust has been in the news quite a bit lately, both with big tech in the U.S., and the biggest tech players in China. Can you talk a little bit about the forces in China, whether it's government or just society at large, that are driving those conversations around antitrust? Right. I mean, there are several things going on in China. So first of all, as you're very familiar with China, you know that China used to adopt quite a lax approach in regulating the tech sector. And this regulatory vacuum partly contributed to this exponential growth of the Chinese tech sector. But at the same time, it also led to many regulatory problems and antitrust is one of them, right? I mean, and in China, there are two companies, Alibaba and Tencent, that have emerged as the biggest and dominant players in a digital economy. Alibaba focused mostly on e-commerce, but it also invests very heavily in many other sectors like entertainment, logistics, and cloud computing. Where Tencent focused mostly on social media and gaming, but it is also a very active investor. And in fact, Tencent is the second largest investor after Sequoia in China's digital startups. And these two companies also own several major super apps in China, which are the apps that not only have vast amount of users, but also provide essential gateways for other startup companies to produce mini programs that could be launched uh, immediately. And so this combination of the aggressive acquisition made by these companies, plus their exclusionary practices, have caught up the Chinese digital economy into kind of like two major camps. One is the Alibaba cam and one is the Tencent clan. And the platforms that in either camp will face restriction to access the platforms from the other camp. So most Chinese startups have no choice but to either join the camp of these two firms. So the, the antitrust problem in China actually runs very deep. And I would say that in China, the Chinese digital economy is much more concentrated than that in the United States. And, and what we have observed in the past few months, all this campaign, law enforcement campaign against Chinese big tech is only scratching the surface of this problem. We haven't really got down to the bottom of the issues yet. You released a new book earlier this spring. Please introduce us to the book. Uh, I've read a lot of the, the, the prologue. It's amazing. Tell us what is it called and what its main thesis is. So the book is called Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism, How the Rise of China Challenges Global Regulation. So the main thesis of this book is that um, the power imbalances between governments and businesses in China has had very strong implications as to how China regulates as an antitrust regulator, 
as well as how China is regulated as a target for antitrust regulation. Now, even though this book focuses on antitrust, um, it is actually more of a book about globalization, about how China's rise have posed fundamental challenges to the global regulatory order. And I do hope the readers can use antitrust as a lens to see this kind of systematic differences, um, the institutional differences between China and the Western liberal democracies. So in your book, you use the term Chinese exceptionalism. Can you explain what you meant by that phrase, why you chose that phrase? Why be so particular about using that word? Right. I mean, so um, the audience probably have heard a lot about American exceptionalism. And in the context of my book, uh, when I refer to Chinese exceptionalism, I, I refer to both how exceptional China is as an antitrust regulator, as well as a target for antitrust regulation. Now, in terms of how China regulates, as we just mentioned, very few companies dare to challenge the antitrust authority directly. So as a result, the whole administrative enforcement process is more or less internalized within the agency, or you can call it the bigger uh, bureaucracy. And so that makes it very important for us to understand how bureaucracy works in China. And that's why I devote um, a very significant portion of this book to analyzing the bureaucratic politics behind the rise of Chinese antitrust. And actually, that is a point not only useful for understanding antitrust regulation in China, but potentially uh, many different areas of regulation, because the fundamental feature of the Chinese bureaucracy is that the power is fragmented, right? Because agencies have, different agencies have a very specific scope of functions. But at the same time, the division of labor is not entirely clear. So there could be overlapping duties uh, over a specific sector or specific company, and that could potentially give rise to conflicts and competition among agencies. So turf war is very common in Chinese regulation. And so understanding all the dynamics um, behind the bureaucratic politics actually is actually very essential in understanding regulatory outcomes. Now, in terms of how China is regulated, the fact that there are very strong power imbalances between government and business has also posed a big challenge for Chinese companies who are now venturing overseas because foreign regulators have had suspicion over the independence of Chinese firms. This makes it very, very difficult for them to define the scope of these companies, to assess their independence. And again, that makes them vulnerable to regulatory control from, from foreign regulators. Now, when I talk about how China regulates and as well as how China is regulated, these two parts actually are interdependent because how China regulates has implications on how China is regulated. As you see now, China is trying to tighten um, its control over the tech companies, right? And, and that actually may give rise to more suspicions uh, from foreign governments over Chinese tech companies. And that make it even more difficult for these companies to succeed overseas and adapt to foreign regulation. Now, at the same time, how China is regulated also has implications as to how China regulates. 
As you see in the recent DD probe by the Chinese cybersecurity regulator, which just happened last week, right? The fact that the United States is pressuring Chinese companies listed in the United States to uh, turn over more auditing documents to the U.S. securities regulator has prompted the Chinese cyberspace regulator to tighten its scrutiny over cross-border data transfer, which is the reason why the regulator was nudging DD to postpone its IPO to conduct a more far-off cybersecurity reveal. So there is clear interdependence between these two. So this is so overall the, the book provides a theoretical framework to think about you know, all the regulatory issues involving China, both inside and outside of China. How much of what happens in the global politics of things is kind of the the tit for tat? You know, the well, you did this, so now we're gonna do that, and then because you did that, we're gonna do this. And you know, how much of this is a political game of, you know, if you get me, I'm gonna get you, and how much of what's going on is really in the best interest of, you know, global business and, you know, global consumerism, what have you? Well, you gave me two choices. One is the tick for tech and the other is for the best interest of the global economy. I actually think that we can reconcile these two. They're the, I say this, the two are the same thing, right? I mean, look at how China uh, retaliate against foreign sanctions, like the aggressive U.S. sanctions over Chinese tech companies. China is doing that not to provoke a war. To the contrary, China is trying to maintain peace with its tick for tax strategy. Because if China show its weakness um, and does not fight back, it actually put China in a worse position because it can provoke the other side from attacking China more. We, we can think about this kind of dynamic similar to what's happening in, in war, in real war, right? I mean, the fact that you... Each country have a nuclear weapon not to start a war. Precisely is to have the nuclear weapon to prevent a war from happening. The fact that we have this powerful weapon is a deterrent for aggression. And um, I guess what China is doing right now with all this regulatory war it is fighting with the United States is trying to, it, it's, it's a way of defense, it's a way of deterrence. And in the best case scenario, China will never need to use those law and, and meet out those sanctions. Right. So what, what has been the main consequences of China's ascent on the global antitrust policy landscape? Well, there are many consequences, but I would like to highlight one of the biggest influence and perhaps that was the most fascinating one is that you can see in this round of the law enforcement campaign against big tech, the Chinese government has been trying to nudge these companies to become more innovative, right? I mean, because we all know the Chinese tech companies are very innovative. I mean, they have excelled in consumer internet business as well as fintech business. They are really now the standing at the frontier of things. However, they have yet to uh, become really competitive when it comes to hardcore technology, things like semiconductors, right? I mean, which is really China's weakest link in its competition and, and its tech rivalry with the United States. So you can see, you know, things Chinese government started to tighten its scrutiny over big tech 
there have been some soft calls from the Chinese state media on these companies to uh, have uh, bigger ambitions uh, rather than just focus on selling cabbage. They should also look at the stars, right? I mean, they should also invest more in foundational science and technology to help China to close the technological gap with the United States. And the Chinese big tech are responding to that call. I mean, in the past few years, they are already heading towards that direction. But you can see very recently, they have started to invest more in uh, innovations. And they have uh, invested more in digital infrastructure, more in cloud computing, as well as driverless cars and, and robots. That's true. Battery technology, AI, um, China could basically stumble backwards over being the number one in AI just simply from the sheer amount of data that one would have to be able to become the greatest AI technology country in the world for sure. If, if we look beyond just antitrust and focus on the broader Chinese policy landscape, what do people in the West get wrong about the way Chinese policy is formed? So the, there is like a common Western perception that everything in China is driven from the top leadership. So the top leadership make up a mind, President Xi Jinping make up a mind, and then and then um, a policy is born. So that's a very idealistic uh, perception of the Chinese policymaking. The reality is that it's much more complicated and nuanced. Um, because the Chinese bureaucracy, as, as we talk about, is highly fragmented. And, and the top leadership, despite being very powerful, energetic, and, and smart, I mean, but they have very limited attention to be devoted to um, very specific regulatory issues. So the vast majority of the policy control is delegated to the bureaucracy. I mean, these are the technocrats who are in charge of overseeing specific sectors or, 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 um, or, or companies, right? I mean, so before the law enforcement campaigns, uh, which was initiated last year, I see the Chinese law enforcement over the tech sector is, is mostly driven by a bottom-up effort, driven by bottom-up efforts by the Chinese administrative agencies. And uh, like in the area of antitrust, in the first decade of the enforcement, the enforcement is split among three different agencies. And these agencies have very different missions, very different objectives and, and structures and, and cultures as well. So and, and these things play a very important role in influencing how the agencies will um, form the enforcement agenda the regulatory approach in um, regulating companies, as well as the final regulatory outcome. And that's why, you know, it's so essential and important to understand the bureaucratic politics in China in order to understand how policymaking work in China. Why do you believe, and I'm, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I I, I, I believe that antitrust is a, is a good lens to look at the shifting power dynamics between China and the West. You know, would you agree with that statement and why? Right. I mean, I do agree with that because even though the book, my book um, deals with antitrust at the surface, but you realize the more you delve into those problems, it gets to the bottom 
get down to the bottom things, which is about the institutional differences between China and the Western liberal democracies, right? So in terms of how China regulate, because we don't have this kind of Western styles of checks and balance because companies don't challenge agencies in court. So decisions are internalized within the bureaucracy. However, as a substitute for the Western styles of checks and balance, we have the Chinese style of checks and balance because the the power is fragmented within the bureaucracy, and there is often a consensus building process um, during policy making. Right? I mean, and the agency have overlapping duties and functions as well. So you ha- so you have um, this kind of internal checks and balance, which tends to be overlooked by uh, Western observers. And and in terms of how China regulates, it really the the fundamental tension really comes down to the Chinese uh, economic structure, which is built upon a state-like governance model, while at the same time, it's highly decentralized. So you can see pervasive state influence and fierce competition among Chinese firms at the same time. And that makes China a very elusive target for uh, regulation. That's so true. I moved from China through Silicon Valley and back to Canada. And after coming back to Canada and living in and realizing the way Canada's somewhat shifted, but still moreover a, a socialist type of nation, I have this kind of quip that I sometimes use to evoke conversation and and some reaction from people where I say, you know, especially when I'm talking to people who might think that China is still communist. And I'd say you'd be so surprised how capitalist China actually is and how communist America actually is, is am I am I even though I'm joking, do you think I'm that far off? No, I mean, the competition in China is very, very Tough roads. Um, you work in the tech sector before, you know how crazy the hours are in the tech sector. We have this 996 work hour schedule from 9 to 9, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and work for six days in a week. And that's regarded as normal um, in, in, a, in Chinese tech sector. And you know, if you look at our right-hand business, um, this delivery workers, they are not employees. They are just contractors and they work insane hours, but let um, this kind of say, uh, like benefits and uh, pension protection like uh, formal employees. So if they run into problems, they don't really have much labor protection. So, and, and that China, but, uh, and, and, and at the same time, this kind of working conditions of workers whether we're talking about engineers or delivery workers, these are the people who have fostered and contributed to China's um, exponential uh, growth in the tech sector, right? And then I can see the Chinese government is trying to uh, make some efforts to reverse that. In the in the most recent round of the law enforcement campaign, the government did try to address some of this problem, some of the income inequality problem, problem with um, labor protection. But ironically, the government is not doing that, as at least so far I haven't seen the government is doing that through tax law 
or through labor uh, law reforms, but rather through antitrust law, right? I mean, I saw the market regulators would go and summon this company and said, um, you guys need to stop overcharging um, the delivery workers or the merchants, and then also improve their welfare and benefits and improve the security, right? I mean, so it appears that the government is trying to leverage antitrust law to do a lot of things, including labor protection, welfare improvement um, for, for the suppliers of this platform. It's really astounding to hear the amount of the fine that Alibaba had to pay leveraged from its own country, given or levied from its own country, just given what a, a tech darling they um, are in China. And I think it's it's a little bit shocking to the to the West to see their own country doing something. You would think that they would be celebrating everything that Alibaba is and has become wide and far and would maybe let them get away with stuff. Um, maybe that it's a little bit of a lens into how um, we see things in the West and the fallacy of the way we see things in the West, especially how it happens in the East. But do you think that you know, even the pause on the IPO from Alibaba, was this a lot to do with what China's antitrust policies have become? I see this kind of actions against Alibaba is long overdue. So Alibaba received a $2.8 billion um, US dollars fine, which is a very big number. And this is the highest fine the agency, the antitrust authority in China has ever imposed on a firm. However, I still believe that it has only scratched the surface of things. Um, as we just talked about earlier, the biggest and the most fundamental problem in Chinese tech sector right now is the interruptibility issue because of these two duopolies that are controlling the two biggest camps in China. And this fine that was imposed on the farm you know, it's it's not a very big number um, for a large company like Alibaba. It only accounted for 4% of its turnover in 2019. And it only addressed one particular problem, which is the choose one from two exclusionary business practices. The fact that the firm, you know, you, you can tell, you know, the fact that the firm can do that, can afford to do that, it's it's already indicated that it has monopoly power and also indicates that the, the market is highly concentrated because that competitive because um, consumers and the merchants are choosing one from two farms, basically. So it's like a duopoly already. So it's, it's only putting an end. So, so this president, this very important president and, and fine on Alibaba is trying to put an end to this kind of uh, exclusionary practice. But it has yet to address the more fundamental and more Formy problem in the Chinese tech sector, and I am, um, you know, at this point because the the sector has become so concentrated with two biggest uh, platform dominated um, the digital economy, it's really really hard to reverse it with antitrust law. Um, if we look at what's happening in Europe right now, Europe has slashed Google with almost. Tens um, billion dollars of fines, but it hasn't really reversed um, the competition. Haven't changed the competition dynamics in Europe. It hasn't facilitated new entry 
So, and that's why Europe is trying to um, introduce more legislation and impose ex ante regulation on big tech, on those so-called digital gatekeepers and impose more responsibility on those companies. I don't think China would go that far, um, at least not for now. But, um, but still, I, I just think that um, $2.8 billion is... It's far from uh, addressing the fundamental problems, uh, antitrust problem with the Chinese digital economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, China has really come to the forefront right. with antitrust policies. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like it's catching some of the West off guard. And I, and I feel like when we were talking about this tit for tat um, type of relationship stuff too, I, I just thought that this you know, the TikTok threats and then the, you know, the WeChat threats and everything's going to be bad. And then, you know, I mean, all of our friends were probably switching different platforms and, and downloading new apps and things just in case, you know, the worst would probably happen. Um, I was just curious on your thoughts of, you know, knowing what we know now and it's all kind of died down, how that happened, why that happened. Right. So the ban on TikTok and WeChat happened towards the end of Trump's presidency and also occur in the backdrop um, the COVID outbreak in the United States, where Trump needed to divert its voters' attention from COVID to China. Right. And now Trump's biggest car is about data protection that it is concerned that China, uh, Chinese companies like TikTok and WeChat might be transferring um, data uh, of um, the American teenagers um, to uh, the Chinese government or even including American uh, military officials, things like that. So that was his biggest argument. And, um, and the fact that the Chinese tech firms have not been able to stand up against the Chinese government, as we just talked about earlier, that they don't, they rarely challenge the government, right? And not to say to sue them in court. Thus seems to lend some uh, support to Trump's argument that there is this fear that these companies might one day turn over the data to the Chinese government. And plus, in 2017, China promulgated a cybersecurity law, which does require companies to um, turn over their data in terms of national security circumstances, right? I mean, but what is clearly what national security is? I don't think the data of the American teenagers <laughs> uh, could amount to uh, national security problems. And by the way, TikTok store, I believe TikTok stores the data uh, in Singapore, not in China. Right, but that still hasn't assured Trump's fear and worry about the data issue. But again, just go back to the point I made earlier about how China regulates will have implication on ch how China is regulated. The fact that the tech companies in China cannot, you know, find it difficult to challenge the Chinese government fear uh, of defending themselves, and that does give 
rise to more suspicion from foreign governments as to the independence of this company. Even though these companies do try to defend themselves that they, the government never interfered in the business decision, the government never requests to see those data. But still, you know, as long as there's this kind of residual control that the government, Chinese government may still have over these companies, that wasn't able to assuage um, the politicians or have given the politicians, American politicians like Trump, this kind of car to uh, to um, to go after Chinese companies. But at the end of the day, what Trump was most interested uh, in doing that, I think at the end of the day, Trump is doing that as a political game, a very um, strategic political gamemanship to trying to divert voters' attention um, rather than really concern about data security issue. Because I remember towards the end of his presidency, he was in the process of uh, forcing TikTok to sell its assets to um, Oracle. And and actually, um, it wasn't a really complete uh, sell. It was just a divestment of some of the assets. But at the end of his presidency, he's just completely lost interest in that cell. <laughs> and, and the whole matter just move on. Um, so he's not really, I mean, at the end of the day, he's not really interested in really protecting, um, you know, the safety of that data. I mean, just a very strategic um, gamemanship uh, on, on Trump's end. That's a car he can play against China. Do you believe that some of this potential, this this political gamesmanship, is this what continues to hurt Huawei today? Are they caught up in this antitrust policy back and forth war? Well, I mean, nationalism has been a very important force um, in today's politics, whether we are talking about nationalism in the United States, which is what Trump was doing in the past few years, as well as the rising nationalism in China in response to what had happened <laughs> to Chinese tech companies like Huawei, right? I mean, the fact that the U.S. is in the process of sanctioning Chinese tech giants like Huawei and ZTE and ban essential components and supplies to these companies have provoked kind of like a Sputnik moment in China, where the Chinese government has mobilized all the administrative resources and all the financial resources and trying to um, develop um, those critical components so it could its businesses can stay competitive with the United States. I don't know how... The, how far um, this kind of rivalry will continue. And it looks like in the current uh, Biden administration, under the Biden administration leadership, um, the United States will continue with this trajectory of trying to contain, at least in the technology side, this China competition and threat from China. But um, I I wouldn't estimate that this kind of tension will further escalate because there was a point towards the end of Trump's presidency. There was a point that people will worry about whether there will be a war between China and the United States. And I would think that's very unlikely. I don't think that tension will escalate to a full-blown war, particularly if these two countries will continue to have significant leverage um, over each other 
And as long as U.S. businesses are still flooding to flocking through China to make investment, there will be still companies like Tesla who are opening factories in China and Apple still have the assembly line in China. I don't see that from will happen, right? I mean, but if if the uh, U.S. government continue, um, if U.S. government pressure its its farms to leave the Chinese market, or the Chinese government um, ask for its tech companies to stop investing overseas, then we might see more decoupling, and that actually uh, will make conflicts more likely. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there'll be any follow through on, let's say? asking or potentially forcing Chinese companies that are listed on American stock exchanges to delist? Yeah, there was a lot of talk about this in the past a few lot. days. Yes, yeah. there was a big worry about those companies with this uh, murky VIE structure um, to be asked to be delist from the U.S. stock exchange because of um, cybersecurity concern. I think that's uh, perhaps... Over worry from the investors. I think the whole, um, the main concern from the Chinese uh, government is about cybersecurity issues, and the whole uh, regulatory uh, uh, events uh, really started from um, the pro into DD Chuxing, which is China's largest um, ride-hailing company, and has a mass of personal data as well as geographical data in China. So the concern is quite specific to DD. And of course, DD, the, the fact that DD failed to listen to the regulator and went ahead with its IPO at the lightning speed uh, gave the cybersecurity regulator a very perfect opportunity to, you know, to justify it tighten oversight over cross-border data issues. And um, and that's why you see the state council immediately release some guidance notes calling on various uh, government departments to uh, enhance oversight over overseas listing. And also the, uh, the cybersecurity regulator released a new draft guidelines over the weekend which requests all companies with over 1 million users be required to go through a cybersecurity review when they go uh, listed, over, when they applied uh, for overseas listing. So that creates an extra regulatory hurdle for um, those uh, companies, tech companies. But I don't see it as a signal that China wants to close off its companies to uh, the U.S. capital market. But it does make the Hong Kong security uh, stock exchanges more attractive for Chinese firms because of the transaction cost reason and the policy reasons. But I don't read it as a signal that the ban Chinese companies to go listed in the United States. But obviously, despite what has been happening, despite the U.S. antagonism, uh, against China, you still see, you know, a long queue of Chinese companies interested in tapping into the U.S. securities market, right? I mean, so um, let's watch the space uh, of what will happen next. But I wouldn't overread the current, um, uh, the, the very recent episode uh, involving DD as 
a complete ban on uh, Chinese overseas listing. Do you think that the future between China and the West is going to be a positive and productive one? And, and why or why not? I'm still quite hopeful about the uh, relationship, a positive relationship between China and the West. And my optimisms actually stem from what I found in this book. So what I found in my book is that I see China can have significant, can hold significant um, regulatory discretion over uh, foreign companies. So China, in a sense, can hold hostage of foreign companies if it wants. But at the same time, you can see Chinese companies can be held hostage by foreign governments. And some of them are already <laughs> sort of hostage to foreign governments. If you think about companies like Huawei and, and um, TikTok, right? I mean, so, and the, and, and the many Western governments are tightening the scrutiny over Chinese companies' activities overseas, whether we are talking about investment or acquisitions or foreign listing, right? I mean, all fronts. Uh, foreign governments are uh, increasing their oversights over Chinese companies and are in the process of increasing their leverage over these Chinese companies. So the fact that the both sides are increasing their leverage against each other is a good thing because this was precisely this kind of mutual exchange of hostage that will be conducive to cooperation and peace. Because if one side loses balance and hold less hostage, then it will make um, the relationship less stable. So, um, and so, and that's the reason this kind of uh, hostage exchange that gave me the the, um, the optimisms for the future of of the relationship between China and the West. I think your book is an absolute must read for anybody interested in China and knowing where we're going, especially in tech with antitrust and all this. Can you let people know where they're, where to find you, where to find your book? Where can people buy your book? Oh, thank you for the kind words. So I created a website for this book. Um, you can access the website at the Angela Zhang at angelazine.net and where you can find uh, everything about this book. And um, the book is available on all the major um, outlets, um, Amazon's book depository, and also on OUP's website offer 30% discount, but you can find the discount code from my, from, from my book's website. Angela Zhang. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed this. I, I loved, uh, you know, your your book, um, and uh, I think everybody should get it. It's it's a really unique take and a really unique lens to look at China uh, at and its relationship with the West and where things are going. So, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market, exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.